the state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at an historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laugh as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. <clears throat> AT&T connects an O to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you so much for tuning in. We hope everybody is happy and in good health as you hear this. Uh, we have we have a pretty cool episode for you today, uh, but first things first, I'm Ben. Ben, it's still me, Noel. What day is it? Uh, I I've started my own calendar, uh, which is yeah. Uh, good. yeah, it's gonna it's probably for a different episode, but um, I think in pre-pandemic times, this was what was called a Monday in the days of yore. Is it like the Ben Gorian calendar? Is that what we're <laughs> gonna call it? I just I'm spitballing here. Well, without revealing too much, I didn't want to name it after myself. That felt a little self-aggrandizing, uh, so I named it after our super producer, Casey Pegram. The Pegrarian calendar? Mm-hmm, that's the one. Ben, I'm honored. I love it. And uh, for, for listeners at home, for you audiophiles, um, my voice sounds a lot smoother this episode because I have an actual mic now. Well, Casey, no technology on the earth could make your voice sound any smoother, my friend, but the audio quality is more pristine today. So kudos for that. And it's so fascinating. Like, that's such a great way to get in today's episode because we are talking about 
technology. And we know we know that the pace of human evolution has been defined in many different ways. But one thing that uh, humanity has always excelled at is the creation of technology. We're the species that's eternally at the drawing board. Uh, we, we get a lot of stuff wrong, but we make a lot of brave decisions, pioneering decisions. And you see, one of the things that always fascinates me about technology, I don't know about you guys, is how much it empowers us to go to places where humans physically wouldn't be able to go on their own, you know, like the wild reaches of the Arctic or the depths of the ocean. Uh, today, we're talking about submarines. Today, we're diving into a mystery. Today, we're diving into uh, a very strange story from the Civil War, but we're not doing it alone, are we, Noel? We sure aren't. Today, we are joined by Dr. Rachel Lance, the author of In the Waves, the story of the SS Hunley, um, a, a Civil War, who knew, submarine. Thank you so much for being with us today. I'm happy to be your underwater tour guide. <laughs> so, uh, no, I, 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 we're, we're thrilled to have you. And I, I'm not kidding. I, maybe, the, maybe this is me showing my, my ignorance, but I had no idea that submarines were a thing during the Civil War. And in doing a little research and reading your materials, I realized it wasn't fully a thing. It was sort of an experimental thing, very rudimentary version of what we would now consider a submarine. Yeah, you're not the first one to say that, so you are not alone. Um, don't feel bad. But you are also correct in that it's kind of like the garage band version of submarines. Uh, the Hunley itself, which, by the way, I don't want to start out well actualing you or anything, but it was not an SS vessel. Um, it was just the plain HL Hunley. It was not officially officially designated. Um, but yeah, the HL Henley was built out of repurposed materials. So this was a recycled submarine and they hammered it out of the recycled boiler of a steamship. Fascinating. So now for, for a quick level set for a lot of, a lot of our fellow listeners today, uh, let's say most people who think of a submarine, they will tend to think of these gargantuan underwater predators, right? Often nuclear powered or diesel powered or something like that. Could you, could you tell us a little bit, Rachel, about uh, how the Hunley came about uh, and what makes it so markedly different, dare I say a, a little bit more low tech than some of the nuclear subs we see in things like Hunt for Red October? It was, I think lower tech is a very kind way to put it. Um, yeah. the, Hunley, the Hunley was man-powered. So it was about 40 feet long, and inside there were eight people. And there was the pilot, who was an officer, so he didn't really have to do that much. But then the other seven members of the crew were all stationed at a hand crank. So this thing looked kind of like the crankshaft of a car. Each of these handles were a little offset and together they would just keep turning it continuously. And that was connected via some gears to the outside propeller. And that was how this submarine moved. It was a human powered submarine. So it was essentially like a, a Flintstones car submarine. Like it's these guys are actually turning cranks uh, to make the thing go. Yeah, I think that that's actually a pretty good description. That's, I've never heard that one before, but I might use it from now on. 
And, and just for the record, just in my own defense, uh, I kind of transposed the HL, which is uh, a person's name, um, the person this was named after, with the SS in my mind. So please forgive my uh, my mistake there. But um, tell us a little bit about the man the Hunley was named after uh, and, and um, maybe some of the history of some of the, tr- the tests and trials that led to the story that we're exploring today, one of which involved the, the man himself. Well, Horace Hunley was actually a lawyer which is not really the type of profession that you would think naturally leads to building homemade submarines. But he was down in Louisiana and he had his law degree. And at one point he was working as a customs agent, but this guy basically always had your next big idea to get rich. And he was lucky to have an extremely wealthy brother-in-law that funded a lot of these ideas. So when when the war broke out, when the South declared that they were going to succeed, they didn't really have much of a Navy to speak of. And historians will disagree on the number of ships that they had, but it's between zero and ten. <laughs> so when zero is your lower limit, that shows you that you kind of need more ships. So Horace Hunley saw this as another money-making opportunity. And he wanted to become what's called a privateer. So he started building submarines with two other men, Baxter Watson and James McClintock. And those two were real engineers. Like these guys worked out of a machine shop and they worked frequently at a foundry and they knew how to put together an actual product. And together, the three of them raised all these funds and started building prototypes. The first one they made was the CSS Pioneer. And that one actually was like officially made a Confederate ship and everything. So no, you can call it whatever you please. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah. But that one, as the Union kind of closed in on New Orleans, they ended up having to sink it intentionally. They didn't want it to fall into Union hands. And so they sunk it in Lake Pontchartrain, um, which is right next to New Orleans, Louisiana. After that, everyone kind of packed up and fled. They went to Mobile, Alabama, which was still a city under Confederate control, and they started building again. So they built a second submarine, the American Diver, and they kind of learned from their mistakes there. But that one sank in an unfortunate accident. And according to the records, everyone got out safely. It's a little bit unclear. There's not a huge amount of detail. But either way, that submarine was now in the bottom of Mobile Bay under some mud. It was no longer going to help with the war effort. After that, they started building on what is thought to be their third submarine. That one would eventually become the H.L. Henley. At the time, they called it just simply Fishboat. <laughs> now, yeah, which I love that name. I think that's Or a also, name. I think uh, maybe the Porpoise was a thing as well, or the uh, the Fish Torpedo Boat. I'm just, uh, you know, a quick glance of Wikipedia has those as a list uh, on the list as well. But I think I prefer a good old-fashioned Fishboat, you know? I agree. I think keep it simple, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. There were a couple other submarines at the time that people were building at home and people were coming up with their own prototypes. One of my personal favorite names is the Intelligent Whale. I think that (laughs) one's a great one. That's really insulting to whales, though, honestly. I mean, you know, come on. My sister-in-law began referring to herself that way when she was pregnant with twins. Um, <laughs> That's fantastic. I did not participate, but I was laughing when she used it on herself. So, mm-hmm. but yeah. So after that, they they started building this fishboat submarine, and they're still in Alabama at this point. But the Union just keeps closing in. It keeps knocking down city after city. And one of their major plans is to take advantage of the fact that the Confederacy really doesn't have much of a navy. 
So what they're doing is they're blockading all of these major cities where they can get supplies in and out. The Confederacy has allies in Europe. That's who's sending them black powder while they're getting their kind of startup of that production ready. It's who's sending them food to replace the food of the farmers who are now fighting. Um, and so blockading these cities was a really effective strategy to just starve them out. And eventually, Charleston, South Carolina, ended up kind of being the last major southern city still to fall. And there are these Union ships just lined outside the harbor. And they've got this submarine in Alabama. They've got this problem in Charleston. So they end up putting the submarine on a train and shipping it over to South Carolina. And they start using it over there. And the eventual goal is to just break the blockade. And at the time, uh, just related to this, I believe the Confederate government was offering, what, $50,000 in 1860s money to anyone who could sink a Union warship. So this is maybe a risky investment and probably seen as a patriotic one, uh, but it could have enormous returns. It also was, from what I understand, it was pretty lethal even in the testing phase, right? Didn't uh, more than half of the initial crew die in testing for the Hunley? Yes. So you've hit on two kind of key points about the history of the submarine is first, that's how privateers worked is these were private citizens and they were using these vessels to try to collect basically a bounty. And it was a bit of a sliding scale, but basically the Confederacy was offering them the price value of the Union ship itself. Plus something like I'd have to fact check the exact number, but it was a it was something like $20 per sailor on board. So if you had one of their larger vessels where they had like 200, 250 sailors on board, that could really contribute to the take-home prize. And that was what um, Hunley and his compatriots were eventually going to do. Really quick question. Um, he he himself actually went along for one of these test rides. Why why would he do that? Is it to like, you know, earn the the kind of trust of his crew? Like if he's just such like a kind of bloodthirsty, you know, privateer just trying to make his cash, why would he put himself in harm's way? Because he did ultimately perish in one of these uh these you know, fatal tests that, that went awry. Oh, spoilers. Oh, spoilers. No, it's okay. I was, I was about to get to that. That was my next answer anyway. No, <laughs> so inside my mind. Um, yeah, so this boat had a pretty horrific track record. And that was known even at the time, like there are these historical documents with these terrible quotes, like um, one of my favorites was to call it an abortion of invented genius. Um, and so people were saying really disparaging things at the time because she kept killing her crew. So it sank once in what the modern day military would call dog and pony show. They were basically just trying to show off for a bunch of spectators. Um, not that great at controlling information flow, but several of the crew died then. And then Horace Hunley one day, even though he hadn't been in the boat himself for months and he was not necessarily super well trained in it. While the normal pilot of the boat was out of town, he decided that he wanted to go for a drive himself. And Jeez. so he wasn't, yeah, he wasn't trying to go on a specific mission. He was just kind of joyriding. Taking it around the maritime block, right? Yeah, 
I think it might have even been in the harbor. If you look at the map, he didn't look like he was aiming to even get out. Um, he just looked like he was kind of joyriding in the submarine. But he ended up driving this thing face first into the bottom of Charleston Harbor where it got stuck and they couldn't get it out. And he and the other seven members of this crew asphyxiated inside. So Horace Hunley was found in the forward conning tower, which was the main exit, with his right hand pushing against that door as he's trying to bash his way out of the submarine. And this is all before the mystery that we set up at the top of the show, we should say. This is, yeah, this is all the the uh, checkered past of the Hunley. So as as you may infer, uh, listeners, when this when this sub sank, uh, this is not where the story ends because uh, later, now the sub sinks in 1863, right? Later in 1864, it is resurrected, right? It's pulled from the muck. They pulled it out pretty quickly, actually. So each time they uh, still wanted to be able to use it. So they pulled it out within at most a couple of weeks. Oh, great. Yeah. The descriptions of that are still pretty horrifying if you really want some nightmares um, because the people were trapped inside. And so they started to decompose, but they had um, salvage divers pull the submarine up and they forced slaves to clean it out because this was the Confederate South. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then they would find a new crew each time. And after Hudley died, that's when they renamed it in his honor. But yes, that is the start of really the mystery part. Their final mission was February 17th, 1864. And a whole fresh new crew um, takes it out and they are successful. So they managed to sink one of the Union ships in the blockade. And after that victory, they disappear. What that meant was that the people in Charleston who knew about these previous sinkings had a very easy explanation at the time. They assumed that it sank the way that it had before, that everyone inside had drowned and asphyxiated exactly like they had before. Uh, But where it got really interesting was when this boat was raised and in 2000, they started conserving it. As they're starting to scoop out the silt and the crud and the, you know, dead crabs and crustaceans that have filled this thing over 150 years in the ocean, they find all of the skeletons of the crew inside. And everyone is completely free of any sign of skeletal trauma. But they're also seated at their stations, which means they weren't like Horace Hunley trying to bash their way out the conning tower. They didn't see uh, what killed them. They didn't see it coming. And so that became a much more interesting problem because all of a sudden you have a new cause of death that's definitely going to be dissimilar from the previous sinkings. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. 
So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Mint Mobile. You know, Ben, I got to say, one of the best parts about spring cleaning is that post-clean clarity you get where you're like, man, how have I been living like this? What's wrong with me? <laughs> you're right, Noel. It's, it's kind of like when you find out you've been paying a fortune for wireless when Mint Mobile has phone plans for 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. That's mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash ridiculous. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Really quickly, I want to get into a little bit about your background and your specialization, because obviously up to this point, you we've been interviewing you like a historian. We're talking about all of these facts and all of the stories that led up to this. But you're actually a hardcore scientist, for lack of a better term. I mean, you your research is um, in hyperbaric medicine and environmental physiology, to name one. I believe that is that we you got your Ph.D. in or is that what you kind of the research that led to you getting your Ph.D.? Well, basically, I'm just an ocean nerd. That's kind of the how I describe <laughs> myself at parties. But um, I really love examining what happens to the human body underwater. And sometimes I do like high altitude stuff as well. These extreme environments are remarkably similar in the stresses they place on our bodies. But yeah, anytime people are underwater, we're like you said at the top of the show, we're existing in an environment where we're not supposed to be. And so interesting things start happening physiologically. You see new types of injuries. You see new types of functions of your lungs and of your vasculature. But yeah, that is the majority of my background is as a pretty hardcore scientist, but also as an engineer. Um, I got started working as a mechanical engineer for the Navy, building underwater breathing systems. And from that, I kind of sprang into Duke University. I was working in a lab that specializes in blast trauma and explosives. So for me, coming from the underwater world into this lab that specializes in blast trauma and explosives, it was a really natural fit for me to start studying underwater explosives. And and on that note, just to interject, I believe you are, not to put too fine a point on it, uh, the le- what, the leading underwater blast trauma specialist on this continent. I, I don't want to make it too awkward bragging about you in front of you, but uh, that's that's what we found in our research. Here's the thing, Ben. If you make yourself specific enough, eventually <laughs> you are the leading one of it. Ben Bowen is the leading podcaster recording from home while wearing a gray hat right now. <laughs> like, <laughs> he absolutely you know? is. Yeah, there's yeah, no question we, about uh, that. <laughs> 
I do think it is important uh, for us to emphasize that there is a ton of science that goes into this. That's that's one of the driving uh, tools that this is the only tool we can successfully use to solve mysteries like these. Uh, but one question I have would be personal motivation. So in 2000, right, the sub is, as you said, Rachel, finally recovered. What inspires you? Like, what was your journey toward diving into this mystery? Did you maybe diving in as a poor choice of words? My apologies. But what, what uh, like, did you immediately hear about it and say, you know, like, I've got to get on this, like a law and order, dum dum sort of theme starts and the investigation begins? Or did your colleagues contact you? What was, what was your journey toward this mystery? Uh, well, in 2000, I had just turned 16. So like most 16-year-old girls, I was fully immersed in the world of Civil War submarines. Um, <laughs> That's definitely sarcasm. No, I wasn't really aware of it at the time. You know, I was a little bit more uh, myopically focused, like a lot of teenagers tend to be. And so I really didn't find out about this mystery until I was already in graduate school working on my PhD. And it was my advisor's idea. One of the things that he and I share in common is we both really love history. We both are always looking for the next kind of historical project. Because when you work in blast and ballistic trauma, a lot of your injuries come from war. And so that means that you are also researching history quite often because it's also an injury that you don't want to inflict on people on purpose. Um, so I scavenge old case files a lot. And a lot of that involves like tra tracking soldiers and tracking what happens in battles and things like that. So this particular project came up as I was working on a World War II project looking at um, soldiers who were in the water when torpedoes went off. And he sort of just suggested it one day. And we both thought it would be a really fun side project, but it got quickly really out of hand. So um, as is pretty obvious from the books, for, from the book, things spiraled wildly out of control <laughs> with these experiments. Uh, but I'm really proud of the way it turned out in the end. The Hunley is pretty famous around the part of the country where you live because it was discovered by Clive Cussler, who is a pretty well-known author, and uh, he wrote about it pretty extensively. But is it, he, he was more of a fiction author, wasn't he? Like, a, like almost like a like a Clancy or something like that, right? Yes, he definitely is a history fan himself, but his books particularly are fiction. A lot of times they're kind of inspired by these weird stories in true history, though. So um, he's also used a lot of the proceeds from his books to kind of go and explore the oceans. Uh, so this was one of his projects for that. And I should note, too, that there have been other people throughout the past 150 years who have claimed that they found the Hunley. And some of them are very credible. But once you have a name like Clive Cussler saying it, all of a sudden the news agencies pay a lot more attention. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of like the really big news story was when Clive Cussler found it and he connected it to his books and things like that. So, yeah. Let's get back to our investigation here. So you're you're looking into this and you're noticing, it's a little grim, but it, but it is science. You're noting that the position of the bodies shows that there weren't people rushing to the hatches and this is this is a huge clue of sorts that um that that plays a role in your hypothesis your drive to solve the mystery of what actually happened to the hunley because i believe at at first you know after 
was it the first submarine to successfully sink an enemy vessel? Uh, after it sank the Housatonic, it disappeared. As you said, people on people of the time, contemporary experts said, well, that thing's cursed, basically. I, I think it sank or whatever. Uh, what was your hypothesis? How did you start putting these pieces together? What did you think ultimately happened to the Hunley? And then how did you test it? Well, I don't want to give away too much, but we, <laughs> um, the thing that really sold me on this as a project was looking at the images of where the skeletal remains were found. So you can find this with a quick Google. If you look at the color-coded images of where each crewman was positioned and seeing that they were each at their crank station and seeing that they had no skeletal trauma, that's a really big alarm for a blast trauma specialist because that's actually kind of the hallmark of a blast trauma. Everyone thinks that you're going to get Jason Statham thrown across the room. Well, he somehow stands up. He's got smut on his face now, but he's still running off to finish his mission. And that's really unrealistic. Um, I apologize for just having ruined every movie you'll ever watch. But um, <laughs> that's not really how it happens. Like to get a blast that throws someone, it has to be quite far above the lethal range. So if someone's being thrown by the blast, they are dead. And that's part of why I wanted to examine this submarine. But as a scientist, you can't just declare, this is my theory. This is all I'm going to pay attention to. That's really bad science because you need to pay proper attention to all of the other ideas as well and approach them from kind of a data-based standpoint and things like that. So that was how I started out with the project was actually looking at the other explanations, especially looking at this theory that they all asphyxiated inside the submarine hull. And I was able to eliminate that one because they were positioned the way they were. If you get really honest about it, it gets pretty graphic. But if you look at every submarine sinking throughout history, the people inside knew they were about to die. And the way that they were found is consistent between every single other submarine accident in history. So you look at like that, the Squalus, the S4, the HMS Didis, all of them. People are clustered near the exits and they're in postures and positions that indicate that they're really suffering. And that's very unfortunate. But the reason for that is because they're experiencing carbon dioxide. I've experienced carbon dioxide before. It's terrible. I don't want to do it again. It hurts. You get this like splitting migraine. I mean, I was curled up on <laughs> curled up on the deck of a dive boat, like, please just leave me here for a few minutes. And it it's really unpleasant. Um, and so to suggest that people experience that and then chose to stay where they are anyway is really inconsistent with human nature, especially when you find that carbon dioxide is used by psychiatrists to intentionally cause panic attacks. So these aren't even people who are thinking logically anymore. This is a biologically induced panic attack. Isn't part of the phenomenon of carbon dioxide poisoning, or for lack of a better term, like your blood actually becomes increasingly acidic because of, uh, you know, kind of trying to compensate for this? And that is painful as well? Like you can experience that as a actual sensation? Yeah. So kind of in a way, I don't know that any person, at least me, has enough experience to be like, oh, my blood feels acidic today. But um, that's what's happening on a biological level. 
And your body has coping mechanisms to try to deal with that. And that's what you end up feeling as symptoms. So for example, that headache is your body expanding the blood vessels in your brain. It's trying to offload some of this acidity so it's no longer reaching your brain. And that's what we perceive as a headache. And that was one of the clues. Again, I don't want to give away too much either. And really quickly, uh, I just want to say, reading your book, um, it it reads like an adventure novel. It's really well written. It's very visceral. And you really feel like there's a scene where you pick up this black powder um, you know, to run your tests. And you almost get into this crazy traffic accident. And you really feel the stakes of everything that you're doing. And the way it's written, is it's a lot, it's a lot of fun. There's a lot of science. There's a lot of history. But it is an absolutely page turn kind of adventure read. So I just want to put that out there for everyone. Absolutely read this book. We're certainly not going to spoil anything, but um, it's, it's a really fun read. Um, can we talk a little bit about the clues when you started actually doing your tests that kind of led you to discount some of those things, other than the fact that people weren't piled up clawing their way out of the submarine? Some of the kind of scientific um, cues that you took after you started doing these tests. So one of the scientific clues to me that wasn't extremely conclusive, but that was sort of a hint and a wink and a point in the right direction, was that when these crew members were recovered, a lot of them still had intact brains inside their skulls. And that's interesting for several reasons. First of all, the discovery that the human brain can survive for 150 years in salt water. But... um, From a biological perspective, a lot of their brains had these kind of diffuse patterns and stains that were just on the surface. And really, because, again, we don't have a ton of examples of people staying underwater for that long, there are multiple possible things that could explain that. But what's also important to know from my perspective is that's what blast trauma looks like. So once again, that's how a brain injury from blast appears, especially one that's in the fatal ranges. You end up having what's called a hematoma, which is that vague spreading of blood somewhere on the brain. And it can appear in any location on the brain, but it only appears really on the surface. And the brain itself isn't disrupted. The brain looks completely intact. It kind of just looks like this paint splotch has appeared. So for me, when I read about that finding, again, you can't really eliminate all the other possibilities just because we don't have a lot of examples of brains in that state. But it's another kind of hint and wink and um, suggestion that we might be dealing with a blast trauma here. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snagajob's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. 
tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. Big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. So picking back up on the idea of black powder, which which I believe we mentioned just briefly there, uh, one thing that I found fascinating about in the waves was that there was a lot of science going into black powder that I wasn't, I wasn't familiar with. Like, you know, I, I've never built a civil war sub. I've never even built a regular torpedo or underwater explosive, uh, much less, you know, like loaded a gun with powder. So how do you even test that? Like how, what, it, it's just such a strange concept to me because it seems like such a, uh, an archaic means of propellant or or blasting. Uh, what was it like when you were thinking, okay, how do we figure out the role of black powder? And what is, is black powder just gunpowder? Um, it depends. The word gunpowder can mean a couple different things. Black powder is the more specific. Sometimes when people say gunpowder, they mean smokeless powder also, which has different blast characteristics. I won't go into that because I like you guys. Um, but black powder is like a very specific mixture and yeah, there was a lot more involved in the finer points of black powder that I had anticipated when I started the project as well. But one of the things that's really important in looking at blast traumas is looking at your explosive, making sure that you know that, um, people are getting blasted in the correct way for that problem. And just a little, we kind of dived right into black powder, but just to really, really be clear, this quote unquote torpedo is propelled by this very archaic, very finicky, uh, dangerous material that you actually transported in the trunk of your Subaru or something or Pontiac, I think it was, right? It was a Pontiac. I'm a Detroit girl. I drive American cars. <laughs> okay, fair, <laughs> so, um, yes. Yeah, so I was transporting black powder and what I was doing was completely legal. I feel like that's important for me to throw out there. But uh, yeah, the thing with black powder is if you hit it and the heat generated from impact can cause it to go off. And so me being in a Pontiac on the highway where two cars in front of me just crashed into each other randomly and there was a massive truck really aggressively tailgating me was a kind of terrifying moment in the experiment. Uh, but thankfully, as an injury and trauma specialist, I am an OCD safety-minded driver. And so I had a little bit extra following distance knowing what was in my trunk. But um, yeah, that guy behind me who was clearly texting should have been a lot more aware because he had no idea what he was, <laughs> what he was so close to with his grill. 
Yeah, but um, dealing with black powder is a difficult adventure, and I hope to never ever do it again. It's extremely finicky. <laughs> so, I, first off, as a fellow defensive driver, I very much appreciate the point you're making about vehicular safety. Uh, so, but we should emphasize too that you weren't trying to intentionally explode something on another vehicle. Uh, H.L. Hunley was one of the things that fascinated me in in the waves was figuring out how this torpedo technology would work i was i was surprised to find out that it was um I, i'm i'm going to say the word that kept coming to mind when i was reading about the setup was uh precarious it was like dicey it honestly it was like why would you why would you get in that sub but how did they make a torpedo and attach it well, they had these two brothers called the Reigns brothers, and they're some of my favorite characters in history because together I think they're really responsible for all the black powder in the entire Confederacy. Um, so one of them started a black powder mill for the Confederacy using a pamphlet and no other previous knowledge. And the <laughs> other one in invented landmines and built all of the mines and torpedoes for the South. So it's important to note here also that the word torpedo at this time in history means something different. It means more of a mine or stationary bomb. So it's not being propelled on its own. But I think that the case of the Hunley really emphasized why that technology would be useful. Because you have the H.L. Hunley in 1864. It sets off his torpedo. Nobody comes home alive. 1870s, people are already working on torpedo designs that can propel themselves through the water. So it's pretty immediately apparent that not only is this useful technology, but we don't want to be near it when it goes off. Um, so that was a really major impact on warfare within 10 years, which is unusual. So to that point, like, you know, the the difference of the concept of a torpedo, how were they able to actually successfully destroy this Union ship? Like, I mean, is it a slow thing where they deploy it and then kind of try to get away and there's a fuse on it? Or can we just talk a little bit about the mechanics of how this thing would actually, you know, be at any level uh, precise? I mean, obviously it wasn't precise. That's a total misnomer. But there had to be some level of control to it. Otherwise, it would just blow up, you know, inside the, the submarine and kill everybody every time. I think they had a surprising amount of control over it and also no control at the same time. The way that this thing worked, it was attached to a spar on the bow of the submarine. So it is outside the submarine, but it's still only 16 feet away because that's the length of their spar. And then their torpedo had a pressure trigger. So what they had to do was hand crank their submarine all the way up to the enemy ship, which is more courageous than it sounds because they are being shot at while this happens, and jab the Union ship in the side of the hull with the pressure trigger on the torpedo. And we know that that successfully occurred because when the submarine and the spar were recovered, the little shards of that torpedo were still attached. So it was peeled backwards over the end of the spar like a Daffy Duck cigar. And it was just cartoonish and clearly evident that it was still attached and only 16 feet away, which was really key to setting up an accurate science experiment to figure out what happened. And again, I, I you know, I, I really don't want to spoil anything, um, but we have to talk a little bit about some of these simulations you ran. At the very least, we have to talk about uh, tiny. tiny. Yeah, 
tell us a little bit about a little bit about Tiny, <laughs> and then we're gonna we're gonna let our listeners find out the rest of the story by getting your book. But we have to dig into Tiny a little bit because it's just it's too delightful not to discuss. People really like that I named the boat the boat the Tiny. Mm-hmm. Sometimes when you're at lab at three o'clock in the morning and you have some spray paint, you make choices. Um, so that <laughs> that's how it got its moniker. But um, that was actually one of the things that I wanted to make sure I included in this book is because I think a lot of times when you read about the results of science, you get like a paragraph or at best a news article that condenses down years and years of research. For me, this was three years of working average 60 to 80 hours a week. And so life happens along the way too. And that's what I think is kind of interesting. Right now we're dealing obviously with this virus outbreak and we've got people working really hard on different solutions and different vaccines. And I've never read another book where they take you through a scientific project and explain what that's actually like to be a scientist, to be a human being, you know, to almost get in a car accident, to have your grandma die, like to get proposed to all while you're trying to plow through this experiment that is either important to you, like in my case, or is important to the world, like what these vaccine researchers are doing right now. Um, So I'm just hopeful that as people read this, they kind of understand a little bit better what goes into all of those news clips and how much real humanity is behind those stories. How the science sausage gets made, in other words. I think that's instructive too, and it's inspiring for a lot of the listeners in our audience. We have a you know, we have a lot of younger kids who listen to the show who are actively interested in pursuing STEM and uh, you know, humanizing that and making making sure that we all realize that the uh, scientists you read about in a news clip are themselves human beings and people, I, I think is, is a powerful thing. And it's something that um, it's something that I personally am very appreciative of. And, you know, it's funny, like the, we, I set this up with the, asking you about tiny, which was the uh, sort of the um, miniaturized version of the Hunley that you created and in a blast of creativity and uh, inspiration and maybe sleeplessness um, at 3am you named it tiny, but that's just the kind of little nugget that publishers love and they'll put in like a press kit for a book or that you can see in a headline or like really grab onto. But that was just one little detail that is kind of fun to talk about, but it represents so much effort and work that you put into not only the research, but then designing the experiment, um, creating a scale version of this scenario and running tests over and over and over again. And then that data became like gold to you or you talk about in the book how you immediately backed it up in like triplicate. Um, so it really is so much that goes into creating this, this math and this data that then can help you tell a story much, you know, m- much larger than just a headline or like a soundbite. Yeah. Thank you. I think people often repeat the Thomas Edison quote and I forget the exact number he used. So you'll have to forgive my fudging it, but <laughs> he says something like he didn't fail 900 or whatever number he, of times he used to make a light bulb. He learned 900 ways not to make a light bulb. But people don't think about the fact that that took years. So he Mm. failed for years. So even our most brilliant scientists and inventors are human beings with flaws. And anyone can do this stuff. It's just all about perseverance. 
And with that, we want to be cautious about spoilers. You, like us, will have to check out the book to learn the rest of the story. And take my word for it, you won't regret it. The book is In the Waves by Quest to Solve the Mystery of a Civil War Submarine. By the time you're hearing this, the book will be available wherever you find your favorite, uh, your favorite nonfiction, your favorite solving of historical mysteries. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us on the air today. This has been an absolute pleasure. And I've got to say, this is one of the episodes that sent me off uh, to read more and more on my own about submarines just for my own personal edification. So, uh, so I owe you a personal thank you. Oh, well, you're welcome. Anytime I can hook someone else on submarines, I'm happy to do so. And can you tell listeners where to find you, um, any social media stuff or any other places where you uh, maybe post, um, you know, the stuff that you're working on currently? I am on Twitter. I'm at Underwater Lance. And they can also find me through my website, which is rachellancewrites.com. So there I'll have updates and announcements and things like that. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much again for joining us. Huge thanks, as always, to super producer Casey Pegram, Alex Williams, who composed our theme, our dear friend Christopher Hasiotis, who is, of course, here in spirit. Thanks, of course, as always, to Jonathan Strickland, a.k.a. The Quister, who's been saying some really nice things to me post-quarantine. Uh, Rachel, that's a guy who makes a cameo on our... It's it's tough to explain. Don't worry about it. Uh, he's a nice guy. As long as he's nice to you, Ben. He, well, he's sort of our nemesis is the thing, but it, it's sort of a soft Cold War kind of nemesis. But I will say this. He has been rocking the steampunk uh, um, uh, outbreak gear, and I am here for it. He's got this like kind of bandana and these goggles and like a cowboy hat situation. It's sort of a Westworld meets, um, you know, uh, Akira kind of steam boy kind of situation. I'm all about it. But uh, thanks, Jonathan, for being a pal and also um, for ruining our lives sometimes. And thanks again to you, Rachel. Thanks to everyone who is tuning in. As I said at the top, we hope this message finds you happy, healthy, and safe. I just followed at Underwater Lance on Twitter uh, so I can dig into more sub news. Uh, and we hope that we hope that you will share some of your favorite strange stories or historical mysteries of your that have yet to be solved or recently solved let us know you can find us all over the internet we're on facebook instagram twitter uh do check out our community page ridiculous historians on facebook and if you don't want to do any of that you can just send us an email to ridiculous at iheartradio.com we'll see you next time folks for more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon Waterways can go where the big ships can only dream through winding passageways of rolling vineyards and castled hills into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time special offers await at avalonwaterways.com.
With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.